Street happens everywhere. Ho, ho, ho! Hello, my name is Pete Goddard and I'm here in the HHE studio with the elf to my shelf. It's Mr. Ryan Weir. Yes, I'm the naughty little boy. You are the naughty little boy and I'm the supporting structure. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Ryan, last episode, the Santillator gave us jingle bells in Turkey during 1400 to 1600 CE. But ahead of the Christmas episode, which releases on the 21st of December, you thought it might be fun to do something special in advance, did you not? That is right. As I was doing the research for the Christmas episode, I thought it might be fun to host a special Podvent episode, which basically sees you opening a series of fact-filled doors to learn more about Turkey in the 15th and 16th centuries. Sounds intriguing. Now, each door will reveal a new festive-themed topic that I've tried to find more information about. And like a proper advent calendar, I assume the doors will go up to 24, not 25, because 25 is the next episode, right? Jingle bells in Turkey, 1400 to 1600 CE. That is right. So to help us with our journey of discovery, I've created a virtual HHE podvent calendar for you to open. So here it is. Oh, okay. It's amazing. It's uh, on the screen. It's got snow and uh, lots of little doors with numbers on, as you would expect from an advent calendar. Yes, that is right. Right. Opening each of these doors reveals a festive image that is the topic for that fact. So what it's saying is if I open a door and there's a picture of Santa's elves, you're going to give me a fact about elves in Turkey during 1400 to 1600? Exactly that. All right, let's jump right in then. Here we go. Ho, ho, ho. Okay, Ryan, I'm excited. How are we going to start all this? Well, before we get started, I do think I need to give a little quick orientation and history, just to sort of bring everybody up to speed on where we are and when we are. Okay, go ahead. Where are we, Ryan? Turkey is a country that's partly in Europe and partly in Asia. Imagine it as a kind of a land bridge between two continents. And as such, it's bordered by a lot of countries. Greece, Bulgaria, Iran, Iraq, to name but a few. It's also surrounded by three seas, the Black Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and the Aegean Sea, which means that it has a lot of coasts. It also has a lot of mountains, forests, and lakes too. Now, at one time or another, Turkey has been home to some of the oldest empires in the world. The Greeks, the Romans, the Byzantines, and the Seljuks. The Seljuks? That's new. I haven't heard of them. Well, you're going to hear about more of them in the next episode. But in the 1300s, a new empire starts to emerge there with a group called the Ottoman Turks looking to take over, which they did in 1453 when they captured and ransacked the city of Constantinople, known today as Istanbul. Ah, Istanbul, it's Constantinople. Da, 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 da. Put it on the Ritz, or however that song goes. <laughs> <laughs> I may have mixed two up there, I'm not sure. <laughs> now, from there, the Ottomans expanded in a big empire that went all the way across Europe and Asia. They conquered various nations whom they ruled for nearly 600 years until the whole thing came to an official end in 1923 after the events of the First World War. And so, as for the period we're looking at today, the 200 years between 1400 and 1600, this is the golden age of the Ottoman Empire, when the area known today as Turkey was simply called the Sublime Ottoman State. Ooh, oh, you know you're doing well if you're the Sublime Ottoman State. You sure do. Now, Peter, door number one, here we go. Hey, two little, I was going to say, champagne glasses clinking together with smiley happy faces. So Christmas cheer, it's a phrase that captures sort of the general mood and spirit associated with the Christmas holiday season. And one of the ways that we recognise Christmas cheer today is to raise a glass of warm mulled wine and say... Cheers! Exactly. Now, in the reign of the Ottoman Empire, though, which was principally a Muslim faith, the consumption of alcohol was prohibited. But not quite, because the empire's reach was so broad, there was a natural blend of sort of Eastern and Western customs, which included drinking alcohol and wishing your companions good cheer. And so there were a number of different expressions from many different languages spoken within the sublime state. In Turkish gatherings, for example, the elite would get together and would toast together saying seref, which means to honour. Nice. The Armenians used genatst, meaning let's live. Oh, I like that one. Yeah. Genatst. <laughs> Slavic-speaking people like Serbs and Croats and Bosnians, they said Seveli. Seveli. Seveli, which translates as to life. 
And finally, there was also a Persian influence there too. And the phrase, be salamati, you might hear when they were raising their glasses to health. Be salamati, Ryan. Be salamati. <laughs> Let's do it. I'm going to... Oh. Well, Ryan, that was exciting, but I want to keep going. And next we have the only even prime number. So I'm going to have a look and see what's behind door number two. Oh, oh, goodwill. Oh, it's a couple of young boys shaking hands with hearts and everyone looking peaceful and happy and joy to the world. That's right. This is goodwill. Yes, it very much is goodwill. <laughs> exactly. Well, look, the Ottoman Empire was known for certain practices that could be considered as expressions of goodwill. One such practice was the Ottoman tradition of hospitality. Uh, it's not only a sort of a cultural norm, but it had its roots in Islamic teachings, which sort of emphasises kindness and generosity to others, especially guests and those in need. Uh, the Ottomans were known for their elaborate guest hosting and charity towards travellers and the poor. The Ottoman state and the Sufi orders, which were a kind of Islamic mystical brotherhood, they ran many sort of public welfare institutions, so things like soup kitchens, hospitals and hostels for the vulnerable. That's awesome. There you go. Goodwill. All right, next, Ryan, is the number that De La Soul famously called the magic number. If you get this many strikes, you are out of the baseball game or possibly in prison for a very long time. It's number three, of course. Let's have a look at see what's behind door number three. Oh, oh. Three kings. Three kings. Of course, I should have guessed that. <laughs> it is quite literally three kings. Yes, that's right. So in 1495, Pope Alexander VI grew alarmed by the Ottoman Empire's spreading influence in Europe. So to counter this rising power, he spearheads the creation of an alliance between several regional monarchs. You've got King Ferdinand II of Aragon. There's King Ferdinand I of Naples, so two King Ferdinands, and they came together to be known as the Holy League. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Like a sort of Avengers of medieval <laughs> monarchies. Yeah, exactly. But uh, the League soon sort of had to turn its attention elsewhere because King Charles VIII of France starts to invade Italy. Oh, classic. Charles is determined to make good on a long-standing claim he has over the Kingdom of Naples. And so, with this audacious campaign, he heads on down into Italy and he takes his army all the way up to the gates and the city of Naples. However, hampered by the opposition from the Holy League <laughs> and uh, struggling with tenuous sort of supply lines back to France, in 1495, Charles ultimately withdrew from Naples and abandoned his ambitions on Italy. The Holy League, save the day! <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was good stuff, Ryan. Now let's move on to the only number which describes its own number of letters. There are four letters in the number four. But I want to see what's behind door number four, so let's have a look. Ooh, ooh. Wrapping paper. Or a bizarrely seasonal wallpaper. <laughs> yeah, that famous festive topic. <laughs> wallpaper. <laughs> So, while the modern concept of wrapping gifts in paper didn't really exist in the Ottoman Empire of the 1400s to 1600s, gifting luxury goods was an important practice. Items like jewelled daggers, illuminated manuscripts, silken robes, bejeweled vessels, all were sort of exchanged as displays of wealth, power, and to form diplomatic ties between different levels of nobles and royals. But rather than paper, these gifts were actually packaged, exquisitely so, in decorated textiles and boxes. So rare silks imported from China along the Silk Road, they were used as wrapping materials too. And Ottoman artisans, they would embroider them with ornate gold and silver threads, turning them into pouches, essentially, or little bags to house the gifts. Oh, nice. Yeah, how about that? That's amazing. It's a practice that in a way still happens today because my partner bought some fancy shoes and they came with a entirely unnecessary silky little bag to put them in <laughs> <laughs> now ryan we're up to number five did you know the fifth element in the periodic table is boron but i'm sure there's nothing boron about what's behind door number five just a moron <laughs> <laughs> here's door number five let's have a look 
<laughs> Ornaments. Well, what a load of old baubles. Yes, which are a type of... Ornament. Ornaments. That's there you right. Go. Christmas ornaments. So, in New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art, there is an Islamic art collection, which has several examples of Ottoman horse and camel trappings. Do you know what that means? Is that reins and saddles and stuff? Spot on, yeah. Saddles, stirrups, bridles, halters, breastplates, saddlebags, that sort of thing. But one notable example in the collection is inventory number 1997.235. Oh, I think I know that one. (laughs) (laughs) And this is a 16th century Turkish horse saddle. Now, at first glance, it's kind of standard looking, I'll be honest. (laughs) A bit worn down over the years. Uh, I mean, it's still beautiful, but, you know, it looks like a horse saddle. But on closer inspection, Pete, it turns out that this saddle is kind of unique. And in fact, it's the only known example of its type from the Ottoman Empire. And it's essentially a wooden base held together with iron and copper. But on the outside, it's the decoration which marks it out as being different from others. So what they did was they had different coloured leather strips layered on top of each other. Each layer is then cut out intricately into thousands of these tiny little delicate patterns that allow you to then see the colours underneath. So you get like this rainbow of colours emerging underneath. It's very beautiful and it's an example of Ottoman style of leatherwork that occurs really only in a small number of objects that we have today. But the decoration of the saddle doesn't stop there, Pete, because it also has a number of small silver metal ornaments attached. Objects like beads, small metal figures, verses from the Quran, symbols like eyes, stars and crescent moons. And these ornaments were placed there not just as an indicator of the owner's wealth and status, as you might imagine, but it was also believed they gave divine protection, protecting the horse from misfortune and evil spirits. So there you go, Pete. You want to ride on a lovely saddle? I always want to ride on a lovely saddle. I think we should definitely be tweeting a picture of that so that people can see what this uh, ornamental saddle looks like. Well, I'm glad you liked it. So what's up next? Next up, Brian, the next number is the number of faces on a cube, strings on a standard guitar, or legs on an insect. It's the only number you need to write the number of the beast. Let's have a look behind door number six. Vixen! It's a girl fox, a vixen, vixen, reindeer. Ah, I see what you've done there. That's quite clever in fairness. I'm a very clever man. (laughs) So yeah, in its most literal sense, a vixen is a female fox. However, there is another meaning, is there not, Peter? There is one of the Santa's reindeer. Yeah, yeah. But it's also used to describe a woman who is considered both attractive but feisty. Ooh, woman you shouldn't be meddling with. She's a vixen. Oh, you vixen. (laughs) Now, one such historic vixen was in the 1500s Ottoman Empire, and her name was Hurrem Sultan, who was originally named Roxolana. Now, she was born in Ukraine around 1502. At age 13, the Ottomans raided her town. They came riding in, grabbed a bunch of people, including her, and she was sent specifically to the harem of Sultan Suleiman in Istanbul. What is a harem, Pete? A harem. Harim is a collection of ladies. Yes. <laughs> it's a collection of ladies for pleasuring the sultan. Ladies to service the people of great import. And they lived in a sort of secluded area, kept away from the rest of men and society at large, I think. That's exactly right. Well described, yes. So, yes, Roxolana is there. Now she's in the harem. But she is different than the rest of the girls there. She has a sharp intellect. She has a musical talent. And, actual quotes, magical charm. Oh, I'll leave your imagination to fill in what that might mean. (laughs) Exactly. And so, yes, with all of these abilities, Roxolana sets herself apart from the others and soon catches the eye of Suleiman himself. Now, it was said that the Sultan was so enamoured by her that he agreed to free her from the harem immediately and then promptly married her. Ooh, promotion. (laughs) I guess. This was, however, a controversial move, as you might imagine. But he did not back down. He married uh, Roxolana. She changed her name to Hurrem Sultan and quickly became his closest confidant, firmly inserting herself in state politics and influencing his decisions on foreign policy for over 20 years 
years. Wow. Which I think makes her truly one of history's greatest fixins. For sure, she sounds amazing. I liked her first name better, though. The original name sounded much more uh, dramatic and exotic to me. Roxolana. I like you, Roxolana. We salute you. Right, let's move on, Ryan. We've got the number of days in a week, wonders of the ancient world, magnificent cowboys or movie samurai. Did you know if you roll two dice, seven is the total most likely to be rolled? So let's have a look behind door number seven. Scrooge. Okay, behind door number seven, we have a grumpy man, Ryan. I think it's me, but it may be Scrooge. It could be both. (laughs) Ebenezer Scrooge. He is the fictional character from Charles Dickens' novel, A Christmas Carol. And he's a man who learns to stop being miserly and be compassionate and kind instead. Now, today, to call someone a Scrooge means that you think that their behaviour is miserly and uncharitable, like the character from the novel. Well, in Turkey, during 1400 to 1600, there was one person who we could quite comfortably call a Scrooge. And his name, Pete, was Kukasinan Pasha. Boo! <laughs> you haven't even heard any of it yet. I know, but you've led me to believe he's going to be Scroogey, so I'm getting into it. <laughs> All right, that's fair. Let's see how you feel at the end. So yes, Kokosinan Pasha was an architect, and he was known for meticulous attention to detail. He had demanding standards of his work, but he was most especially known for his penny-pinching ways. He was said to be so frugal that he would even take stones from graveyards for his construction projects rather than pay for new materials. That's miserly. (laughs) In fact, his contemporaries described him as a man who was more interested in saving money than in making it. Well, penny saved is a penny earned, as they say. Indeed. Now, perhaps not surprisingly, he was also known for his simple lifestyle. He hated luxuries. Uh, He rode an elderly mule instead of uh, using a horse. And he only ate simple meals of ingredients that he could find in the street. He wore modest clothes and was said to believe that every coin spent should be used wisely. And he frequently challenged his clients as well if he felt that their demands were being wasteful. (laughs) But all of this worked in his favour, Pete, because it earned him the respect of the Ottoman Sultan, who considered him basically an essential part of his plans to build huge, magnificent buildings on a minuscule budget. So he was kept employed for a long old time. Well, I guess a budget's a budget. You've got to stick to it. So I can see how that's a skill. Although also he's a bit of a Scrooge. So boo. <laughs> boo indeed. Humbug. <laughs> well, that was good stuff, Ryan. Uh, Shall we move on to the next door? It's a very lucky number in Chinese culture. The next one, number eight. It's the number of a magic ball. It's the first cubic number. So let's have a look at door number eight. <laughs> Wise men. Ah, Ryan, I see three wise men before me. I think this is three wise men. You're wrong. It's Christmas log. Yeah, no, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is. It is wise men. Now, over the 200-year period between 1400 to 1600, there were a lot of Ottomans that could be considered wise men. Uh, But perhaps the wisest men of all were those who ended up in the role of Grand Vizier. This was a job which required them to be the head of the imperial government, the most senior military commander, and primary advisor to the Sultan on all matters of state, politics and governance. I have always wanted to have the title Grand Vizier. I think it's evocative. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree with you, Pete. It sounds awesome. But being Grand Vizier was a position of great power and influence, as you can imagine. They were appointed by the Sultan himself. They were considered by everyone as essentially the vice or the deputy Sultan. And uh, to get the job, they had to demonstrate that they had prior governance of administrative and military systems. They had to have shown loyalty and service to the empire. They needed to have a rich understanding of politics and they needed to be scholars as well. They had to be well educated across a broad range of subjects and they had to have written books on science, the arts and Islamic law. So these were some smart people. Well I could definitely be a grand vizier, I'm sure of it. I'll aim for that for my next job. (laughs) And so they were, as you might imagine, well paid for all of this. They were given a substantial salary, they were given luxury homes, they were entitled to land, they could get bribes from people, they could capture spoils of war. But being Grand Vizier then put you in a position full of risks. Uh, Because if they fell out of favour with the Sultan, 
then their life was on the line. The most notable example of that is Ibrahim Pasha, also known as Ibrahim the Mad, who was a childhood friend of Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. I'm aware of Ibrahim the Mad. He was uh, one of my favourite characters in history. <laughs> so Pasha was made Suleiman's vizier. He quickly rose to become one of the most powerful men in the empire, a position which he held for the next 13 years. But as time went on, uh, his power, wealth and influence in the court led to jealousy and resentment amongst the nobility and rumours started to spread about him plotting to seize the throne. Whether that was true or not, I'll leave that up to you to decide. These rumours eventually reached the Sultan, Sultan Suleiman, who became convinced that Pasha was treasonous and so he ordered that he be arrested and in 1536, royal executioners strangled Pasha to death. I would like to withdraw my application for the position. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone. Good Lord, this is an upbeat festive episode. <laughs> OK, let us move on. We are now on number nine, Ryan. Did you know there's a fun fact about the number nine? If you take any multiple of nine, so nine, 18, 27 and all, so on, the sum of the digits add up to nine. So let's have a look and see what's behind door number nine. I didn't understand any of that. <laughs> but then maths is not my strong point. <laughs> Oh, mistletoe. We have a sprig, Ryan, of a mistletoe. A mistletoe? A mistletoe. <laughs> That's a strange way of saying it. But let's, you're absolutely right. This section, the topic is mistletoe. <laughs> so, mistletoe, known scientifically as viscum album. It's a uh, parasitic plant. It grows on trees and is found in many parts of the world, including Europe and Asia. So during the period of 1400 to 1600, mistletoe would have been present in Turkey. Unlike today, though, where tradition says that people should kiss underneath mistletoe, at that time, mistletoe was seen as a plant with special powers to provide a protective charm against evil spirits. It was also used as a traditional herbal medicine as well. So it would help lower your blood pressure by having sort of a calming effect on the heart and blood vessels. It treated epilepsy and other neurological disorders. It was used as an anti-inflammatory drug. Uh, especially for arthritis, apparently. Uh, it boosts the immune system, it treats asthma and bronchitis, and it was used to help with anxiety and sleep disorders too. But that is how they perceived it. It's worth noting that modern research into mistletoe is still ongoing, and it remains a subject of debate exactly how helpful it really is. Point being, it's not widely accepted in conventional medicine, so you shouldn't be taking it unless you seek out medical advice first. I will stick to kissing under it, I think, but thanks for the advice, Ryan. Yeah, the advice is don't consume the parasitic plant. <laughs> Good advice for anyone, I think. Right, moving on, Ryan, we are up to the first of the two-digit numbers. Unless you're using Roman numerals, then we're back to a single X. We've got 10 Downing Street, 10 Commandments, the top 10. And if you spend 10 seconds on the canvas in a boxing match, it's a knockout. So let's see what knockout surprise we have behind door number 10. Oh, oh. Joy. I don't know what this is. It's um, it's like a smiley face, but it's also got arms and legs, which is already <laughs> freaking me out a little bit. And yeah. it is leaping around musical notes and sort of celebratory hurrah, cheers, I don't know, excitement that's right. or mutation, <laughs> some sort of genetic abnormality. I don't know. Yes, that's right. The topic is some sort of genetic abnormality. <laughs> Joy to the world. This is joy. Oh, is that, is that what it is? <laughs> it represents joy. Uh, he's, he's scary. <laughs> he's a little scary, yeah. Now, there was a lot of joy and laughter in everyday life in Ottoman Turkey. People would tell funny stories, they'd play music, they'd produce shadow puppet plays. Uh, but one of the most popular forms of amusement was found in intellectual wordplay, specifically riddles. Ooh. So here are some genuine riddles from our time period for you, Pete. All right, I'm ready. Riddle number one. I laugh during the day and cry at night. I am in the water, yet I burn with thirst. What am I? Um, fluoride. That is not the right answer. No, I was, I was just leaning heavily into the I'm in the water thing here. Uh, okay, I cry at night. Well, that's me, obviously. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, Ryan. What is it? I laugh during the day and cry at night. I am in the water, yet I burn with thirst. The answer is a candle. How is a candle in the water? 
the flame is in the liquid wax. Oh, oh. okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll accept You that. have to be intelligent, Pete, for these. Yeah, this is intellectual wordplay. I'm not an Ottoman. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a man. <laughs> All right, next one. Riddle number two. I met a nomad who travels day and night without ever moving from his place. Who is he? Fish salesman. It's not a fish salesman. <laughs> he doesn't move from his place. He takes it with him. <laughs> oh, that's clever, because place is a type of fish. <laughs> oh, you see what I did there? Wordplay. <laughs> Maybe not I pro- am an Ottoman. <laughs> You're not proving yourself as an intellectual, Pete. I met a nomad who travels day and night without ever moving from his place. Who is he? A sundial. Or a fish salesman. Or a fish salesman, if you're Pete. <laughs> All right, third one. It has a door, but no lock. It has a tongue, but does not speak. It shows the way, but does not walk itself. What is it? it? Is it a shoe? It is not a shoe. I think you've just literally taken the word walk. No, <laughs> tongue. It was shoe, a shoe has a tongue. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, okay. It has a door, but no lock. I, I, I'll admit I was a bit befuddled by that part. <laughs> no, I suppose you could count that as putting your foot in it, right? That's a kind of a door for your foot to go into a shoe. <laughs> it is not a shoe. The answer is a book. It has a door, but no lock, because you open it up. It has a tongue, but does not speak, because it talks to you, right? Ah, yeah. Yeah. It shows the way, but does not walk itself. It teaches you things, but you have to do it yourself. These riddles have proven that I am not an intellectual. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) However, Pete, that being said, not all of them were intellectual wordplay. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see if you can get riddle number four. (laughs) A lone sentinel stands erect, guarding two jars of pearls. What is it? Is it a... (laughs) It is indeed a... and. (laughs) I got that one straight away. (laughs) (laughs) That says a lot about you. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. All right, that was great. We're on to number 11. Did you know, Ryan, an 11-sided shape is a hendecagon, and you can see one of those on a Canadian $1 coin, apparently. But anyway, let's have a look at what's behind door number 11. Gingerbread. Oh, this is clearly a gingerbread house with a little gingerbread man coming out of his gingerbread door. That's right. So, yes, overall gingerbread. Ginger first came to Turkey via the Silk Road many hundreds of years prior to 1400. So by the time it gets to our time period, ginger is well known in the region and it's a key ingredient used in flavouring meat stews and puddings, that sort of stuff. It was also used for medicinal purposes too, for nausea and vomiting and diarrhoea, but it was also known as something of an aphrodisiac too, Pete. Ooh. Yeah. It was also seen as a symbol of good fortune. There are uh, records of newlyweds being given gifts of ginger as a totem of good fortune for future prosperity and luck in having numerous children. But we're not talking just about ginger, Pete. The topic is ginger... Bread. Ginger bread. And unfortunately, ginger bread wasn't a thing in Turkey during this time. However, bread is also a slang word for... Money. <laughs> Correct. And in Turkey, during the 1400s to 1600s, ginger was quite literally considered as good as money. Because with huge demand for ginger as a spice, a medicine, a sex aid and a wedding gift, Istanbul quickly establishes itself as a key import and export hub for ginger between Asia and Europe. And because merchants needed to carry ginger on their travels, they would use it in exchange for everyday transactions like buying local goods or settling debts. And it wasn't just merchants either. Ginger was sometimes used by common folk to pay taxes to the government and even buy land and property. I don't know quite how much ginger you need to buy a house, but there you go. Uh, In fact, ginger was such a lucrative commodity that criminals started to counterfeit it. They would make fake ginger out of cheaper spices like turmeric and paprika, and even, in one reported case from 1540, selling ginger that had been mixed with sawdust. 
Oh, scandalous, scandalous stuff. They're always Every dealer is. They're always cutting their goods with something, aren't they? They are, but those guys didn't get away with it. Uh, they were arrested by the authorities and given out a severe punishment of death. It doesn't get much more severe than that. Uh, but let's move on to number 12. This is another important number. It gets its own word, a dozen. 12 signs of the Zodiac, 12 days of Christmas. So let's find out if there's a partridge in a pear tree behind door number 12. Toys. The image behind the door is creepy doll toys staring at me. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't the intent. (laughs) It's slightly scary. I'm getting Five Nights at Freddy vibes, but I think it's probably toys. Toys. (laughs) So, yes, toys in Turkey during 1400 to 1600. Well, dolls were the most popular toy for children in Turkey. But other toys were popular too. Uh, Puppets, spinning tops, toy animals and marbles. In fact, in 1489, a group of children living in Istanbul were caught by the authorities playing marbles with live frogs because they couldn't afford real marbles. It really raises more questions than it answers for me, Ryan, but I think we have to move on. I I think they just said they were playing marbles and I suspect they were just throwing frogs at the ground. (laughs) This is my my impression of it. Uh, Yeah, anyway, the the record says that the frogs were taken off the children and released back into a pond, though, so in case you were worried. Also, here's a key thing. Uh, Every year in the city of Konya, uh, they held an annual toy parade for the children. So the children would come along, they'd bring their most beloved toys, and on the day of the parade, the streets would fill with the children, showing off their toys and the parade would end with a gathering of them all in the town square where they formed a circle and they paraded their toys around a makeshift stage. That sounds hilarious, actually. I'd like to see that. Yeah, it's Look at my cool. action, man. <laughs> yeah. Now, there is one other point about the Toy Festival and that it, it is uh, held in the Spring Festival and it was seen as an opportunity for the community to kind of come together and party. But given that it was a coordinated effort by local toy makers, uh, you might see it as something of a cunning opportunity for them to just make a lot of money. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think I see what happened there. (laughs) I thought it was quite clever. It was. All respect to the toy marketers of the Ottoman Empire. (laughs) I think that's the most Christmassy fact I've got out of all of this. Consumerist corporate... (laughs) Toy sales. Oh dear. Ryan, we've got to move on. We're on to number 13, or a baker's dozen. That is a saying thought to originate from bakers adding an extra item to an order of dozen baked goodies so that they couldn't be accused of shortchanging you. But let's see if we get more than we bargained for behind door number 13 on the Podvent calendar. Oh, oh, Comet! Um... Oh, okay, yes. Is it the star that people follow? It looks uh, very much like a comet, but I think it's probably a star or a comet. It's Comet, another one of Santa's reindeer. Oh, of course. I was thinking of the Follow the Star, which they thought was a comet. Ah, no, this is Santa's reindeer comet. We've had Vixen, now we've got Comet. All right. So, astronomical events like lunar and solar eclipses uh, were recorded by court astronomers. They were known as Munajims. Munajims, I like that. Munajims. It's a fun word, yeah. Now, they weren't scientists, Pete. They were more like astrologists. They were tasked with studying the movements of the celestial objects to try and predict future events and individual fortunes. So it would be business decisions, military campaigns, farming advice, matters of the heart. People would come to these guys, the Munajims, and say, what do the stars say? Is it going to be good? Uh, And one of the things that Munajims look for more than most were comets, which they considered to be key harbingers of future events. They viewed them with awe and fear as they were considered to be omens of war, famine, death and other misfortunes. Oh, so not good news then. No, and so you can imagine the concern they felt when one of the most famous comets, Halley's Comet, appeared in the sky roughly every 76 years, in 1456, 1531 and 1607. In fact, the Munajim who witnessed the appearance of Halley's Comet in 1456 called it the Great Comet and was so terrified of the doom that it portended, he alerted the Pope I guess he had a hotline or something. (laughs) And the Pope, Calaxtis III, he uh, also now was fearing total doom, so he did the only logical thing he could think of to rid everyone of the danger. Any idea what it might be, Pete? Um, Was it excommunicate the comet? That's exactly what he did. (laughs) He excommunicated the comet from the Christian faith. I was trying to be absurd, but I could not be as absurd as... (laughs) 
Pope in the 1400s. <laughs> there you go. That is amazing. Oh, well, that's a good comet fact, Ryan. Well worth the price of entry. Uh, the next door, Ryan, is 14, the number of days in two weeks, which gives us the fort of fortnight. 14 nights, a fortnight. So let's have a look at what's behind door number 14. Oh, oh, stockings. And here we have a row of rather pleasing stockings. So, yeah, so stockings, as we understand them, weren't really a thing in Turkey between 1400 to 1600, but there were clothes that were very similar. They were known as the shores and hose. Now, shores were fashionable in the early 15th century. They're long, tight-fitting socks that covered the entire leg from the foot to the waist, and hose, which were similar uh, but shorter and looser fitting. Uh, they gained popularity around the mid-15th century. Both of these were made of wool. Both were worn by men and women, and mostly for practical reasons they were warm and they provided protection from around the legs you know from bugs and if you fell over and stuff to give you a little layer of protection but they also served as a fashion statement too indicating a kind of a social status so the elite would wear silk or cotton versions right rather than scratchy old wool and they would also have like these intricate patterns embroidered around them with gold and silver threads in fact there was a decree by sultan bayezid ii in 1502 restricting the use of certain colours and fabrics for stockings of those in a specific social status. So no fancy stockings for you if you don't have a lot of money. And in fact, he even backed that up with punishments for those who continued to wear fine socks despite being poor. They would have fines first. If they did it again, they would have their stockings confiscated. And in one case, one person even got exiled over their stockings. Good Lord, imagine that. You're in prison and you say, what are you in for? Oh, fancy socks. (laughs) (laughs) You monster. (laughs) Okay, Ryan, we're up to number 15, the number of minutes of fame Andy Warhol said we would all have at some time. Interesting 15 fact, in Hebrew, the words 10 and 5, which we'd use traditionally to make the word 15, also makes up one of the words for God. So instead, in Hebrew, they say 9 and 6 instead of 10 and 5 when they're trying to say 15. But behind door number 15, what do we have? December. The month of December? Uh, That's exactly right. December. (laughs) It's our festive topic for door 15. Go on then. (laughs) The word in Turkish for December is Aralik, and it comes from the Arabic word Arlak, which means end or completion, which kind of makes sense, really. I like that. Yeah, it does. Yeah. More sense than December being the 12th month. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. Now, much like December today, during our time period, a time for giving and sharing. Wealthy families would distribute gifts to the poor or the less fortunate, and uh, charitable organisations would organise events to raise funds for those in need. But December was also a time for the performance of the Sema by the Mevlevi Sema, known more famously as... The Whirling Dervishes. Hey, I love a whirling dervish. That's right. Now, these were members of an order founded by Jalaluddin Rumi, a 13th century Persian who emphasised the importance of love, compassion and unity with God. Now, inspired by Rumi's poetry, they created the Sema, uh, which would become a central practice of their faith. The ceremony, which was performed in December in a special hall called the Semazenhain, was mesmerising. The dervishes would come in dressed in their flowing white robes and perform a series of movements, each with its own sort of symbolic meaning. They would spin counterclockwise, their arms outstretched, representing the expansion of the universe and the soul's ascent towards the heavens, transcending the limitations of the physical world and connecting with the divine essence. Pretty cool way to celebrate December. Quite right. I shall have a little whirl after this episode, Ryan. You dervish. (laughs) Okay, we're up to number 16, Ryan, the number of pawns on one side of a chessboard. It's our move. Let's see what's behind door number 16. Mary. Oh, I'm going to guess that this is the lovely Virgin Mary. 
It is indeed Mary. That's right. That is the festive topic for Door 16. So yes, Mary. It was a popular Ottoman name for women. Uh, the religious connection, meaning that women named Mary, or Maryam as it was known in Turkish, uh, were held in high regard. So during the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople in 1453, some accounts say that all the women named Mary were brought to the city's walls to help provide some spiritual defence, like a last line of defence of Mary's. I feel like if you're wheeling out your Marys, you are very much at your last line of defence. <laughs> it's like, well, have we got any cavalry? No. Infantry? No. People called Mary? Yeah, we got a few of them. Get them up. <laughs> Here they come. <laughs> Battalion of Marys. Oh, dear. <laughs> now, uh, while the Ottoman legal system did not see women as legally equal to men, there was an exception, and that exception was for women named Mary, who were given their own set of rights under the law. So, for example, in Ottoman law, it was recognised that any woman named Mary could own her own property and not be controlled by her husband or any male relative. Women had a right to inheritance, but they would often receive much less than males. But records from an Ottoman court show that any woman named Mary could actually inherit property directly from her parents, husband or any other relatives without any of those similar forfeits. Uh, arranged marriages were common for women, but any female Marys were allowed some say in who they married. In fact, she could even refuse a marriage proposal and petition the court for a divorce. And Marys could even retain custody of their children after a divorce. And not only that, Marys were the only females who could bring charges against their husbands for violence and theft. That is incredible. Call that just for a name. I would definitely be calling my daughter Mary if it comes with all those fringe benefits. It begs the question why all young girls were not called Mary. <laughs> It does a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Mum and Dad. Cheers for calling me Agatha. <laughs> All right, Ryan, we're on to number 17. 17 being, if you're in France, the number you dial if you want to call the police. Let's have a look at what's behind door number 17. <laughs> Naughty! It's a mischievous-looking boy with a pair of what look like paintbrushes. He looks like he's been graffitiing a bit. Yeah, so mischievous, what's another word for mischievous? You're naughty, naughty, a naughty boy, that's what it is. He's a naughty boy. A naughty boy, yes, that's right. So Santa you know, has his naughty and nice list, and this is naughty. So yes, that's the topic for Door 17. So during the 14th to the 17th centuries, the Ottoman Empire conducted a practice called the Defshirme system. Now, the Devshirme system involved the forcible removal of Christian children from their families in the Balkan territories and integrating them into Islamic culture, basically training them up for future employment in all sorts of elite and high-ranking government and military jobs. Now, the children were selected based on their physical and intellectual abilities. They were brought to Istanbul, they were given new Islamic names, and they were entered into this rigorous system of education and training that was designed to enforce loyalty and make sure that they were highly skilled. And a number of the boys excelled. They went on to become integrated administrators and soldiers, each of them really super loyal to the Sultan. But this wasn't the case for all of the boys, and there were many instances of rebellious behaviour from those who refused to participate. They would defy their teachers and try and attempt to escape the system and run back home. But the Devshirme system had a strict set of discipline, and if any of the boys strayed from what was the expected standards of conduct, there would be severe consequences. There was harsh physical punishments, uh, including beatings and floggings. They subjected the naughtiest boys to solitary confinement, locking them in a room by themselves in total isolation for months. They were subject to other additional duties or training exercises. They'd get extra drills, longer training hours, public humiliation. Uh, that was another one to sort of shame the child in front of all of their peers. And while rare, if their behaviour was consistently rebellious, then the Devshirme system wasn't beyond using capital punishment, with serious offenders being beheaded, hanged or drowned. That is worse than a D on your report card by some considerable margin. It's pretty bleak, isn't it? Yeah, I think I'd uh, fall in line pretty quick, to be honest. I'm not that brave. I, I don't think I'd be very good at being brainwashed. <laughs> that was your opportunity to say because you don't have a brain. 
<laughs> I know. I just didn't want to. I was trying to think of something more original, and I failed. <laughs> Nevertheless, we're moving on, Ryan, to number 18. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day is the first line of Shakespeare's sonnet number 18. So shall I compare thee to an open pod bent door? Let's have a look. Oh, oh, peppermint! And we have either a sort of Willy Wonka-esque marijuana plant or possibly peppermint. The peppermint, that's right. So peppermint, known scientifically as menta ex pepperita, is actually a hybrid mint. So it's a cross between water mint and spearmint. Now, it's used for aromatic and medicinal purposes since the ancient times and the Ottomans themselves loved, loved, loved peppermint. They used it as a traditional medicine for colds and pains. They used the peppermint leaves to scent their mosques and public baths. They used it in their cooking, obviously, to flavour dishes, drinks and desserts. Some believed that observing the size and health of peppermint leaves could help them predict droughts and storms. Dried peppermint leaves were actually used as a packing material for the reeds of traditional Turkish wind instruments. <laughs> yeah, apparently it was believed that they enhanced the tone and clarity of the actual instrument itself. Oh, nice. Yeah, some folk associated peppermint with love and attraction, causing some young Ottoman women to put peppermint leaves in charms and spells that they hoped would help them attract eligible bachelors. And in some of the more mystical circles, peppermint was actually used in rituals as offerings to appease evil spirits. In fact, in some communities in Turkey today, peppermint leaves are still used in funeral rituals to cleanse and purify the bodies of the deceased to help the soul prepare for the afterlife. Well, that was some minty fresh fact-finding, Ryan. I'm impressed. <laughs> All right, we are up to the number 19, Ryan. No, 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 19, as people my age will know it, from the Paul Hardcastle song 19, in which they declare the average age of a combat soldier in Vietnam is 19. Apparently, though, it wasn't. It was closer to 22 or 23, but that didn't rhyme as well, I guess. Uh, but in any event, let's have a look at what's behind door number 19. Oh, oh. Shepherd. Oh, well, that is clearly a shepherd. Correct. Shepherd is indeed the festive topic for door 19. So yes, a crucial part of the Ottoman economy was production of wool from sheep, and shepherds obviously played a vital role in the production of that by maintaining the vast herds of sheep that were needed to keep that economy afloat. The shepherds, during our period, were mostly nomadic. They travelled with their flocks across pastures looking to find the best grazing lands, and they were kind of specialists at what they did. Their knowledge of breeding, disease prevention and veterinary care, all in an effort to ensure the health and productivity of their livestock. But given their solitary and gentle nature, shepherds started to become sort of like this common figure in Turkish folklore. Tales of their courage, wisdom and connection to nature were then passed down throughout the generations. And one such folktale from our time period is called Sister and Brother. And it goes a little like this. Ahmed Aga a wealthy but childless man longs for a child. His wife dreams of a mermaid who tells her that Allah has a gift for them by the sea, and Ahmed, initially sceptical, finds a pot on the beach containing two newborn children, a boy and a girl, and so, obviously, he joyfully adopts them. Meanwhile, in another town, a couple who are expecting twins become the target of a jealous servant. When the wife gives birth, the servant takes the newborns, puts them in a pot, and casts them into the sea. Now this is the same pot that Ahmed later finds. The birth father asks the servant, Hey, where's my kids? And the servant says, Well, actually, your wife's been deceiving you all along. She was never actually pregnant. And so in anger, he kicks his wife out of the home and he exiles her. The mother, now destitute, she just wanders the land until she encounters a kindly shepherd. Hooray! The shepherd takes her home where she is offered shelter and compassion. She lives with the shepherd and his family and for many years she grieves the loss of her children and the anger of her unjust exile. Now, eventually, as Ahmed's children grow up, they learn the true origins of being found in a pot at sea, and the boy embarks on a quest to find his birth mother. His journey, Pete, is filled with many challenges, including defeating dragons. But eventually, remarkably, the boy finds his birth mother, living with the shepherd's family. 
overjoyed, he brings her back to Ahmed Aga's home, and there she reunites with his sister, her daughter. She thanks Ahmed and his wife for lovingly raising her children, and now, as one big family, they all praise Allah for the shepherd's kindness in keeping her safe and well. Hooray! Oh, that's a heartwarming Christmas tale there, Ryan. I agree. I think it's lovely. I like that story. But we have to move on. Time is running out. We're up to number 20, Ryan, or as you doubtless know it, a score, as in the President Lincoln speech four score and seven years ago. Uh, So let's see what we score behind the door. Okay, Ryan, what we have is a rather adorable, uh, I was going to say duck, but I think it's probably a goose. It is indeed a goose, because a goose is much more festive than a duck. (laughs) Now, door 20, Pete, is indeed goose, and geese were a part of daily life in Turkey during 1400 to 1600. In a travelogue called Seyahat Nami, written by Evelia Celebi, he mentions geese as being a common sight in the Ottoman countryside. He says that farmers keep them for their meat, their feathers and their down. And uh, he says that other people keep them just as guard dogs and even more simply as pets. Now, from a farmer's perspective, though, Pete, keeping geese was actually an essential part of growing healthy crops. But that is because geese are migratory birds, meaning that they naturally take off for other lands in a sort of a seasonal pattern. Basically, if you're a farmer who keeps geese, then when they take off on their winter holidays and return in the spring, it's nature's way of telling you to do farming stuff, plant seeds, pull up crops and all that sort of stuff. And it's not just farming where we find geese either. In the poetry of Nefi, an Ottoman poet from the 16th century who was born in Istanbul, he uses geese as a symbol of beauty and grace. His poems praise their elegant movements and melodious calls, saying things like, As if a flock of geese were flying in her abode, each one flying into my eyes as a beauty of life. Ah, I've got geese in my eyes. (laughs) Yeah, and like geese, they swim in rows in its water. They sing like nightingales in the garden of the heart. Oh, lovely. Who knew the goose could be so romantic? Goosey Lucy fact. (laughs) Okay, Ryan, now we're on to number 21. 21 grams being the weight of a human soul. Uh, And also gave its name for the same reason to the film 21 grams. Uh, But let's have a look at what's behind door number 21. Eggnog. Um, okay, it's an, I'm, ah, I think it's, it, okay, it's a glass of what looks like milk and there's a little boiled egg next to it, but I think it's eggnog. That's exactly right, eggnog. So eggnog, traditionally drunk at Christmas, uh, it's made of milk, sugar, spices, and most notably, raw eggs. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it has its roots in medieval Europe, uh, which means that during the Ottoman Empire, eggnog was not a thing. In fact, the consumption of raw eggs was frowned upon. Don't get me wrong, eggs were a big part of the Ottoman diet, but the preference was for them to be obviously cooked in things like omelettes, pastries and other dishes. Uh, And the reason for this was because there are Islamic laws which influence the way that Muslims cook their food. Known as halal, these laws emphasise the the importance of cleanliness and preparation of food, which includes cooking eggs. Well, that is reasonably wise, isn't it? Raw eggs are generally to be avoided these days, as I understand it. That's very true. Now, this is the case all but for one exception. Because in some extreme cases where Ottoman soldiers were on campaign and their supplies were depleted or destroyed, they were encouraged to go and forage or requisition food from local people, with eggs being considered the priority food source for them to get. And that's because eggs are a good source of protein and other nutrients. And so they would try and get eggs wherever they could, often eating them raw if in the midst of battle or unable to make a fire to cook them. And so eggs became super important to the Ottoman military and they then soon developed techniques to help make them carry more eggs uh, for longer longer periods of time and uh, they did this with a couple of methods one of which was to preserve the eggs by uh, coating them in grease to seal the pores on the shell to stop them going off and then submerging them in barrels of lime water Ah, that's interesting Uh, they do say you can coat an egg and it will stay good for a long time don't they? They do indeed Oh, nice. Well, good eggnog fact in a 
difficult situation there, Ryan. I think he pulled it out of the bag. Thanks, Pete. So, yes, on to the next number, which is 22. Now, Ryan, obviously you're aware of the novel Catch-22, which gave the phrase Catch-22, but did you know it's nearly quite different? The first title for that work was Catch-18. So let's have a look at what's behind door number 22. Uh, oh, um, it looks like hot gravel, but I'm going to guess it's, um, is it chestnuts? It's not chestnuts, no. Have another guess. Popcorn. It's definitely not popcorn. Think Christmassy it, things. Um, cinnamon. It is myrrh. That, we could have been here for a very long time without <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it looks like hot gravel in that picture, but that's not <laughs> heat, that is scent. Ah. Yes. So, myrrh. Myrrh is our topic for door 22. So, myrrh is a resin, and it's obtained from the Comifora myrrh tree, which is native to parts of the Middle East, the Arabian Peninsula, Somalia, Ethiopia, Sudan, places like that. It was a uh, precious commodity in Turkey during our time period for a couple of reasons. One, it is said to have antiseptic and anti-inflammatory properties, and so it was used in treatment of wounds and digestive issues. Uh, It also, though, has a warm, slightly spicy and balsamic fragrance. That's how it's described. And it's used in the preparation of incense, which was, uh, you know, an important part of religious ceremonies. And so, traders brought myrrh to Turkey over huge distances, transporting it around as lumps of resin and in powder form. Oh yeah, yeah, I've got powder, I've got resin. Yeah, I've heard it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so they packaged it in sacks or in crates and they sort of just hauled it overland via caravans of camels. (laughs) Now, myrrh was so popular that Turkey became the central hub for buying it. And myrrh was sold in markets across the empire as a luxury item. It was considered as expensive as fine silk and spices like cinnamon and nutmeg. Wow, and I suppose if you bought your myrrh from a lady, you could say you bought it from a mermaid. That's actually very good. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, that's very good. (laughs) So, Ryan, the next number is 23, the jersey number of both David Beckham and Michael Jordan. So a good number if you're thinking about sports. Not so good for politics because Julius Caesar was stabbed 23 times. Let's have a look what's behind door 23. Chimney. <laughs> it, uh, you really made this one straightforward. It is a, a tiny house with yeah. uh, a chimney that's approximately twice the size of the house. Uh, you really focused on the chimney there. Is it chimney, Ryan? It is, because I didn't want you to just say house, which is what I was thinking that you would do. So I just made a huge chimney on top for you, uh, for you to see. That's right. Chimney is the topic for door 23. Now, it might surprise you to learn, Pete, that fire was a thing in Turkey during 1400 to 1600. Really? They had fire. They did, yeah. And it was used, get this, to heat up homes and help them cook their food. What what an innovative people. We're learning a lot on this show. (laughs) But one of the problems with fire, Pete, is a thing called smoke, which is like a sort of foggy cloud of hot ash that sort of comes out of the fire in quite a large volume. Tell me more. Yeah, so there's going to be lots of smoke in your house if you've got a fire, and that would cause the Ottomans to not be able to see, choke a lot, and have smelly clothes that smell of smoke. So to get around the smoke problem, they installed these structures to their homes, which they called chimneys. Now, these were like narrow channels that were in the walls of their building, which allowed the smoke to disappear up through it, out through the roof, where it sort of disappeared into the air. Now, these chimneys were made out of stone or brick and they made them appear more attractive by putting decorative tiles on them to kind of you know cheer up the place i guess but a problem with these chimneys was that the smoke over time left layers of ashy soot behind making the narrow chimney hole even narrower and preventing the smoke from escaping so the ottomans would have to regularly clean these chimneys. Now sometimes the chimney owners had servants to do it and other times they had to call in labourers. Either way the cleaning process was kind of the same. The chimneys uh, required people to go up onto the roof where they would have a long stick with a cloth on the end and they'd shove it down the chimney hole and scrub away at the inside until it was 
more clean than it was when they started. Now, this was a dirty and time-consuming job, but not as dirty and time-consuming as those people tasked with cleaning the chimneys at the Topkapi Palace in Istanbul. Now, this was the home of the Ottoman Sultan, and it was enormous, having the most chimneys in Istanbul. Literally dozens of them. <laughs> Hard to imagine. Hard to imagine. Yeah, so they would have to go up and clean all of these chimneys all in one go. Now, some of these chimneys also had a little hidden secret. Now, the rumour is that some of the chimneys in the Topkapi Palace contained secret passageways behind them, so the Sultan and his family could escape if the palace came under attack. Oh, that's an adventure classic, isn't it? The revolving fireplace. Exactly. I want one. Ah, oh, don't we all? I have a fireplace, but I don't think it's functional. That was good stuff, Ryan, and very festive. But now we are down to the final door. 24. 24 carats means you've got pure gold on your hands. And I think door number 24 is going to be pure gold. Let's have a look. Oh, oh, miracle. It is one of a star or possibly a thermonuclear explosion. Yeah, is there anything else going on in that image? There's people holding hands, there's doves, there's peace, there's joy to the world. And again, possibly a lot of fallout and a nuclear winter coming soon. That's not the case. It is, in fact, miracle. It represents a miracle. (laughs) Is that what that is? (laughs) Why would you draw a miracle? It is a good question, and I think you've done well. Thank you. So miracle is indeed the topic for Door 24. So yes, Before the fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman forces in 1453, the Byzantine Empire had put in place several massive iron chains across the Golden Horn, which is the name of the harbour and the city. And the point of these chains was to defend the city by preventing any enemy ships sailing into the harbour and attacking the town. Now, these chains were pretty effective at that. They stopped the Ottoman navy from attacking on several occasions. In fact, to the Orthodox Christians living in Constantinople, the chain took on something of a mythical status, and they believed that as long as it continued to stretch across the water, the city was going to be safe. And this was a belief that proved to be prophetic, because on one night in 1453... Citizens in the harbour watched in horror as the iron chains opened up on their own, despite having been firmly locked in place. The divine protection was gone, the city was vulnerable to attack, and panic and despair spread like wildfire as the Ottomans sailed into the harbour and ultimately took over the city. And this event came to be known as the Miracle of the Iron Chains. Ooh, it's a miracle, a Christmas miracle. (laughs) Not quite. (laughs) A horrible, horrible Christmas miracle. (laughs) So, yeah, so while on the face of it, the chains opening on their own certainly looks like a miracle, the truth is slightly less magical. Because leading up to that fateful night, the leader of the Ottomans, Sultan Mehmed II, he had devised an audacious plan to remove the barrier of the chains. So his first step was to order the construction of an entire road of greased logs, which ran overland from the Bosporus River to the Golden Horn Harbour. Then he ordered his navy to head to the Bosporus and over the course of one night lift their ships out of the water onto the log road and drag them to the harbour, basically bypassing the chains completely by taking his entire navy over land. And so once the Ottomans entered the northern end of the harbour, they slipped the ships back into the water, and to the dismay of the citizens of Constantinople, taking them basically by surprise, the chains had seemingly opened up to let these ships through. That was the only explanation. Now, the day after the miracle, Sultan Mehmed launched his assault on the city, and after hours of fighting, they breached the walls and flooded into Constantinople, marking the official end of the Byzantine Empire that had lasted for over 1,000 years. Merry Christmas, everyone! (laughs) Ho, ho, ho! It's the end of your era. Well, that was indeed a miracle, a sneaky miracle. I like that. That was a good story, actually.
Brian, that brings us to the end. There are no more doors because, of course, 25 is our Christmas episode in which we will discover jingle bells in Turkey between 1400 and 1600 CE. And I'm sure it will be a stuffed stocking of an episode, will it? Only if you've been a good boy. I've been very good, Ryan, and I look forward to learning and enjoying many, many things next week. All right. So that is, in fact, our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed our little departure from the normal format, and we do hope you'll join us for the Christmas episode next week. As ever, if you do want to get in touch about any of the things we talked about on the show, or if you just want to say hello, come and talk to us at Pete and Ryan at hhepodcast.com or come to the website, which is hhepodcast.com. That's right. We'd love to hear from you, and you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. If you're on Mastodon, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, you can find us at hhepodcast. And if you subscribe to those, you're going to get an alert every time we post extra content. And of course, we'll be back again next week with the big Christmas episode. But until then, a huge thanks to you, Ryan. Thank you to you, Peter. And I guess that's it. All that's left to say is... Ho, ho, ho. You've been listening to... History Happened Everywhere. Thanks for listening.